jokes in the pulpit that I uh, would not be a comedian because I think the Word of God is far too important for us. There's simply too much here for us to study than to spend our time talking about jokes. But there is another motive. There's another reason I don't tell jokes because I remember one Sunday morning after beginning a sermon with a joke and then telling another one during the course of the sermon that Les Crandall told me, stick to preaching and don't tell jokes. He said, you can't tell jokes. And if you remember Les, or Les, been, Les has, been, has passed away a little while ago, and he was one of the very best at telling a joke, and he just told me, he said, you, you just don't have a sense of timing, so stick to preaching. Now, I've told you all of that just to let you know that I am very sincere when I say that it's a privilege to speak from the Gospel of Matthew, that I do approach the Bible with all seriousness, and I won't say that I'll never tell another joke or I'll never say something to amuse you, but that is not going to be the focus of our messages. I attended a conference a few years ago in which there was a fellow that preached a sermon that from the beginning to end was a joke. And you can take that either way that you want it. But uh, he he started with jokes and he told jokes all the way through. And my opinion is that a sermon that's built on jokes is a joke of a sermon. So if you're visiting with us today, uh, you may not find what you expect here at Berean Baptist. Uh, People are now today accustomed to some very much lightweight preaching and churches, fun and games and a rolling, rollicking good time. Well, we do have a good time here. But we find our good time is centered in the exposition of God's Word. Now, we spent a lot of months very carefully making our way through this text in Matthew because it is a very important part of Scripture, very important in the canon of Scripture. In fact, there's nothing that we can do that is more important than to study the life and the teachings of Jesus Christ. It is through Christ that we have eternal life. Uh, This is an issue of life and death, not just physical life and death, but an issue of eternal life and death. And what you believe about Jesus Christ is the determiner between life and death. Now, if you look at our text today, you're going to see on one hand a very strong reaction against Jesus, but then you'll also notice the, the heart of the Savior, the love and the compassion that he had. And this is a very important text because it reveals the selection of Jesus Christ as God's servant, the one who came into the world to bring salvation to all people. Now, if you'd stand with me one more time as we read God's word. My wife said a moment ago, we we stand too much in church. And I said, well, that just gets your heart going, get you going here. So we'll stand up and read one more time. Matthew chapter 12, verse number 14. Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him, how they might destroy him. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all, and charged them that they should not make him known, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed 
shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory, and in his name shall the Gentiles trust. Father, thank you for the reading of your word today. Open up our hearts to the message you'd have us to know today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. There's some difficult parts to this scripture that we've just read, and we're not going to get to all of it today. But I want you to notice the key verse in this section. Verse number 18 says, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. That verse is the heart of the message. The title today of the sermon is The Selected Servant. And this is the servant that was chosen by God, the servant that always did the Father's will, the servant that God said that he was well pleased with, the servant that had within him the Spirit of God. This is the servant by which the world is judged according to righteousness. And if I might add also, this is the servant who said that he would save all who believe in him and would condemn all who do not believe. And I think you can understand from that that what we're speaking of here is not lightweight matters. These are things that deserve our utmost attention. And I'm afraid that in most churches today that the character of Christ is never discovered. The work that Christ came to do is never made known. The true condition of people without Christ is not explained. The consequences of not knowing Christ is ignored as if it didn't even exist. And so our focus is on this chosen servant of God. But as usual, there are preliminaries to deal with to help us to understand where we are in this text and why is it that the writer records this particular part of Jesus' life. And so today, as is my custom, I want to preach a message that deals with these preliminaries And then next week, we're going to get into the main point of this message. So we begin here in verse number 14, and the reader that has dropped into this portion of Scripture without knowing all of these preliminaries would find that this is a very strange reaction to this wonderful person that we know of named Jesus. Matthew records, Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him how they might destroy him. Now, what I want to speak to today, particularly in this message, is the plot against the Savior. Now, most people know a little bit about the life of Jesus, or if you do, you're, you're very much aware that Jesus was a good man. He did a lot of good things, that he was a great example and had many virtues. But despite that goodness and this long list of qualities that, was, that were in Jesus, people misunderstood him and they unjustly condemned him to die. And looking back at this with little biblical knowledge, they, they don't have much to go on. And so they consider that Jesus was a martyr for his cause, that the real root of the problem between Jesus and people was just a, an issue of great misunderstanding of what he had to say and who he was. Now, at this point of Jesus' ministry, there is growing rejection against him. In Matthew 11, there were doubts about his claims to be the Messiah. There was apathy towards him. There was indifference towards him. There was criticism that was growing. 
And those different reactions against Jesus were being fueled by the religious leaders that held such a grip on the spiritual lives of the people. Now, you need to understand that the people of Jesus' time, the ones that we're talking about here in Scripture, are very much different than people in America today. These are people that were very religious. Jesus ministered to Jews, and the very thing that defined them as Jews was that they had been chosen by God as his nation. And so the lives of the people were centered in their religion. And although you did find secular Jews, you weren't going to find very many that just completely divorced themselves from from this idea that they have a relationship with God. But the problem here is that the religion, their religion, had been hijacked by this group of self-moralizing Pharisees that had turned the grace of God into an oppressive system of rights and regulations. And they told the people that for them to be right with God, that what they must do, they must keep all of these rituals and all these rites that they went through. And what they had here was merely just an extreme version of what's already in the human heart and what is actually the basis of all false religious systems. And that is this universal belief that the way to heaven is paved with good intentions. That the way that we get to heaven is by good works. That is the ticket. And if we can just do enough good works, then we can reach heaven or at least have a better chance of reaching heaven than we otherwise would. And that is actually the idea that permeates all of the religious systems of the world. But it's most clearly displayed in a false Christianity that says that Christian works are the cause of our justification with God. And so you have denominations such as Roman Catholicism that claims that salvation comes through sacraments and acts of penance and rosaries and repetitions and rituals that people go through. And what you have there is the basic idea that was the root and core of the Pharisaical system. Now, the leaders of these people were greatly respected. They were considered to be the paragons of virtue, when in fact, their hearts were really as black as coal. These are people that were more interested in their pride and their position than they were with the salvation of people. And so in the first part of this chapter, we find here the real core of disagreement that existed between Jesus and these religious leaders The people were still awestruck at Jesus because of all the works that he could do, all the miracles that he did. They were awestruck, but the leaders had contempt for him. The leaders did not like Jesus in any way. They were upset because what Jesus did was to threaten their position. He attacked them with truths that cut out the heart of their religion. It knocked out the props from underneath their system. And if you wanted to put it this way, it undermined that platform, that foundation that they stood upon that enabled them to keep their grip on the people. The foundation of that system was the Sabbath day. And in the beginning of this chapter, Jesus defied their false teachings about the Sabbath. And we could go into that in great detail this morning, and we could see how they had harnessed the the Sabbath and had made that the ox that pulled their religious cart. 
But we don't have time to go back and cover those earlier verses now. You need to go back to the previous messages to get an explanation of that. But suffice it to say that if Jesus was right in his teachings about the Sabbath and the Pharisees were wrong about what they said, then the whole system would crumble and fall. And with it, the religious leaders would also go down. And that helps you to understand why that we come to this passage and Jesus is now public enemy number one. His picture is in all of the post offices. His name is tacked up in the synagogues as the rogue, the one that we must get rid of, the one who must be brought down at all costs. Never mind that he taught truth. Never mind that he brought them the real way of salvation. Never mind that righteousness is found in him. Never mind that he's the key to eternal life. The most important point for these religious leaders was staying in power and maintaining the respect of the people. And Jesus was a threat to that. And so he had to be stopped at all costs. So we come here to verse number 14, and the religious leaders had been stewing... And they had been talking amongst themselves what they could do in order to formulate some kind of plan to get rid of Jesus. And so we see here that they held a council. There was a council against him. They held a council how they might destroy him. Now we would notice here that they didn't get together at this point to decide to kill him. That's already been decided. And by reading the original Greek text here, you'll find that there's an indication that the decision to kill Jesus had already been made, but they hold the council to figure out how are we going to do it? How are we going to go about getting rid of him? Now, you see, on one hand, people were still listening to him. The, these people were convinced that there was very, something very special about Jesus. And that's sort of a duh moment, isn't it? I mean, here is this man that's, that's going everywhere, healing people. He's casting out demons. He's raising people from the dead. There are people in Israel that have these diseases from which they have no hope of recovering. And when a person got these kinds of sicknesses, they resolve themselves to a life of hopelessness. They were not going to get better. There was no hope of getting better. Instead, They were just the less fortunate whose lot in life was either to die of their disease or to live in the misery of it. And Jesus changed all of that. He came into Israel and with all of the miracles that he was doing, the healing that he was doing, he virtually wiped out disease in the entire land of Israel. And you can be sure of this, that these people were not going to be happy uh, with these pharisaical leaders derailing that gravy train that Jesus was driving. And then on top of that, as they looked at Jesus, he was tender. He wasn't hyped up. He wasn't trying to make a name for himself. He never dispensed even one single miracle for an offering. He wasn't like the men today that line their pockets with seed faith money, the fake healers that you have today. A little bit later on, we're going to look at the contrast between Jesus and the leaders, but Jesus was nothing like them. And so he had endeared himself to the people. So when the scribes and the Pharisees got together, they had a meeting to discuss how are they going to get rid of him so they have to find a charge against him and do it in some way that it doesn't turn the people against them in the process. Now in the Gospel of Mark chapter 3, Mark tells the same story of Jesus going into the synagogue and healing this man with a withered hand. Now that's what takes place in the 
first 12 verses of Matthew. The, finally, it comes down to the place, uh, Matthew 12, rather. It comes down to the place where Jesus healed a man with a withered hand. But if we read the same story in the Gospel of Mark, we find that Mark gives us a little bit more detail, a little, an interesting little tidbit that we don't find out about in, in Matthew chapter 12. And there in the third chapter of the Gospel of Mark in verse 6, it says, And the Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Now this gives you an idea of just how desperate the Pharisees were to kill Jesus. They went to another of the religious parties called the Herodians and they enlisted their help in figuring out a way to get rid of Jesus. And just from that name, just from the names of these people, the Herodians, that gives you an idea of what kind of people they are. Now, if you were with us at Christmas time, I spoke to you from Matthew chapter 2, and there we have the story of the wise men who came to find Jesus when he was born. And at that time, Herod the Great was the ruler in Judea. And Herod was a vile, wicked, very cruel man. He became angered very easily, and he'd often take his cruelty out on the Jewish people. Herod was not a Jew. He was an Idumean. And that means he was an Edomite. These are people that have been traditional enemies of the Jews for centuries. And Herod was just a typical Edomite. Now remember, we found out how cruel that Herod was because when he learned that the wise men had deceived him and uh, didn't tell him where he could find Jesus, that Herod issued this decree that, that all of the Jewish babies, male babies, two years old and under, would be killed. That's how cruel that Herod was. Now, in our story, Herod the Great is dead. But there's another Herod that's ruling, and this is Herod's son. His name is Herod Antipas. He, he is the one that had John the Baptist beheaded. And you can see that this cruelty just ran through that family. The, these men, they were no friends of the Jews. Now, there, the, there was this party then of aristocratic Jews that had risen. They were called the Herodians. And these were... Jews that favored the policy of Herod, and they supported the Roman government. And these men were an unholy group. They were not ones that you would find in league with the Pharisees because they paid no attention to their restrictive rules concerning the Sabbath. They laid no importance upon righteousness that the Pharisees taught. They had absolutely no interest in that kind of religion at all. Really no interest much in God. They were more of a political party. They were interested in what government was doing and not what God was doing. And so they were also opposed to Jesus because they perceived that he was an enemy of the Roman government. Now, if you would, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 22, and we can see here how the Herodians were involved in a, in a plot to trap Jesus. And this begins in uh, verse number 15, and we see these Herodians in league with the Pharisees. Matthew 20, 15 says, 22, 15, Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Master, we know that thou art true and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of men. And you know what you can call that? That's what we call blowing smoke. They're buttering up Jesus a bit because they have entrapment on their minds. So verse 17, they ask a question. Tell us, therefore, what thinkest thou? 
Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? And I love the way that Jesus responds there because he knew their hearts. And he wasn't at all shy about telling them what he thought of them. You know, people have the picture of Jesus as this this man who carelessly let people run over him, that he didn't really want to hurt anybody's feelings about anything. And if you have that picture of Jesus, you have the wrong picture because one thing you never wanted to do, you did not want to stand in the way of truth when you met Jesus. Now, Jesus says then in verse 19, Show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny. And he saith unto them, Whose is the image in the superscription? They say unto him, Caesar's. Then saith he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. Now, I'm not going to go into an exposition of those scriptures. That would lead us away from our subject at hand. But I just want you to see how the Herodians are involved here trying to trip Jesus up with a tax question. If Jesus denied the authority of Caesar concerning taxes, then they have a cause to take him before the Roman rulers and make that charge stick. Now, are you starting to get the picture a little bit here? Here you have the Pharisees that are willing to enlist the help of the Herodians against Jesus. And why would they do that? Well, we discussed the first problem. The people are still following Jesus, so they couldn't very well attack Jesus on the basis of Jewish law. The Jews' real concern here, their concern was about the Sabbath, but they, but they can't kill Jesus based upon the Sabbath. The Jews had lost that authority to execute people, and they would have done it by stoning anyway, but they had lost that authority. And so the second problem they have, they can't enforce a death sentence, not because he broken the Sabbath. Romans aren't interested in that. They don't care whether Jesus broke Jewish law. So joining up with the Herodians was a way to get their cause heard concerning Roman law. And so thus you see the Pharisees with the Herodians trying to trip Jesus up on the tax question. Now the Pharisees, of course, they have no affinity for Roman taxation. They, They certainly don't care about that. So what we have here are very strange bedfellows that get together because their common cause is to get rid of Jesus. And if you go on reading in Matthew 22, you'll find out that another sect of the uh, Jews are involved in this, and that's the Sadducees. They're also no friend of the the Pharisees and no friends of the Herodians. But they have a common cause. It's the hatred of Jesus. And so they were willing to become comrades to get rid of him. Now we go back to our story in Matthew 12, and the Pharisees have joined up with the Herodians to put together this plot to kill Jesus. And when we get to the crucifixion many more months down the road, we'll see that the charge that's finally brought against him is a charge of insurrection. Now, he was, uh, first of all, originally charged in a Jewish court for blasphemy against the temple. But when Jesus finally made it before Pilate, the Roman governor, the charge against him was that he was trying to incite sedition against the Roman government by claiming to be a king. So you have this alliance... Now here you have these Pharisees, they're, they're so sanctimonious about Jewish law. They're so concerned about keeping the Sabbath. They're pretending that they are defenders of the faith. They, they show that by their indignation against Jesus and his treatment of the Sabbath. And they join themselves to a party that have no interest at all in matters of faith. These are people that are terrible violators of the Sabbath themselves. So do you see the hypocrisy? 
You go back a moment to the 12th chapter, verses 9 and 10, and this is the question that the Pharisees asked Jesus about healing. And when he was departed thence, he went into their synagogue, and behold, there was a man with his hand withered. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on Sabbath days that they might accuse him? So their question is, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And their answer to the question is, No, it's not lawful to heal on the Sabbath. But they knew exactly what Jesus was going to do. This man is in the, sab- uh, in the synagogue with his withered hand, and Jesus is going to heal him, and they knew that when he healed him, he was going to break their law of the Sabbath. Jesus did that. And you remember, we studied through that, how he shamed them over that. And then we come to verse number 14. Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him how they might destroy him. So on the Sabbath day, get, now get the picture, on the Sabbath day, it is wrong to heal. But on the same Sabbath day, it's not wrong to plot the murder of an innocent man. It's not wrong to team up with some of the wickedest people there are on the planet, the Herodians, to do it. Listen to John Broadus' comment. He's a commentator from the 19th century. He says, what a reproach upon human nature to see men maintaining that it was a mortal sin to heal diseases on the Sabbath and yet foully plotting on that same sacred day how they might destroy the innocent teacher and healing and healer. So here you have this plotting and scheming going on. And if I might make a brief application for just a moment here, here is the typical screening of the problem that is in the human heart. And I'm, I'm glad we put that little piece in the, in the bulletin today. Read this about the human heart. It's not possible for you to be involved in a plot against Jesus to take his life. He's not here in person. There is no courtroom that you can take him to. You can't be in the crowd that says, crucify him, crucify him. But it's nevertheless true that every person that is an unbeliever, every single person that hears the gospel of Jesus Christ and rejects it, every person that says, not now, maybe later, or maybe not at all because I'm not interested, every person in that condition rebels against God. And by your refusal to believe in Jesus, you're saying he is an imposter. That God is a liar. Jesus deserves to be crucified. Though he has changed so many lives and he has helped so many people, he is simply not worthy of belief. And every sin that you would commit is in that way, and that unbelief is defiance against him. And friends, I'm trying to tell you that in the heart of every single person is this very same wicked potential. That if Jesus was here and you could see him, if you could listen to him, you would do the very same things that these people did. They plotted against him. And you might say, no, no, I would never do that. Then why don't you believe him now? I mean, the record is here. The truth about him is here. The consequences of unbelief are here. And to refuse Christ is to say his death matters not at all. The life of Christ doesn't matter. The blood of Jesus Christ does not matter. And you know there is a world filled with people that think like that. Some of them are driving up and down the street on this side of our building, even as I'm speaking to you. You know, every now and then I'll hear a Harley go by or somebody with rap music playing so loud that it rattles the church windows. And these are people that have no interest at all in what's going on here. They have no interest in Christ. And there may be some people in this number here today that 
really, you're like that too. Maybe next week you won't care to be anywhere to worship the Lord on his day. Instead, some will go find a preacher that will tell jokes and that will never call you out on your sin. See, churches don't like to preach repentance today. They don't preach about faith unless they're preaching about faith in self or faith in self-esteem and all those kinds of things. One of the things that we do here is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ so that people realize the condition that they're in, that they have this great burden of sin that's upon them. And by preaching the gospel of Christ, we want to bring them to the place where they cry out for mercy to have that burden lifted from them, that they would understand that they are unworthy souls in need of the grace of God. And it's not popular to preach that because what it does, it calls in question your motives. It calls in question your heart. It talks about the depravity of your heart, and it means you must do some self-examination. And people don't want to do that. They're content the way that they are, and Jesus is no part of their life and other plans. But folks, it is best that we truly do know who Jesus is And next week, we're going to talk more about this selected servant that's been chosen by God. But if we could return to our text for just a minute, I want to conclude the message here. Notice verse number 15. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence, and great multitudes followed them, and he healed them all. Now, when Jesus knew about this plot, let me deal briefly with the first part of that verse. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence. Do you remember two instances in Jesus' life just before he was crucified? The first one was when he was betrayed. And he was approached by a mob in the Garden of Gethsemane. And when they came to arrest him, Peter pulled out a sword. And with one whack of that sword, he cut off the ear of the high priest's servant. Jesus says in to Peter in Matthew 26, pick up or put up again thy sword into its place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? Jesus could have been delivered from death right then. All he needed to do was call angels to the rescue. The second instance was when Jesus appeared before Pilate, and he refused to answer Pilate's questions. This is the exchange that took place between them in John chapter 19. Then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and the power to release thee? Jesus answered, Thou couldest have no power at all against me except it were given thee from above. Therefore, he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin." Now, I brought these points up to point out to you a very crucial truth about Jesus, and that is the control that Jesus had over his work, the control that he had over his life. Now, Jesus knew the Pharisees were putting together this plan to kill him. They had enlisted the help of the Herodians to do it, and that showed that they were getting more serious about this thing now. Now they're trying to figure out how can they actually, actually accomplish it. But you group these verses that we've just read together with our text, and you'll see that it's not the Pharisees, and it's not the Herodians, it's not the people, it's not the betrayer, it's not the Roman governor that's in control of what will happen to Jesus. Jesus was in control. He was in control of the exact timing of his death. 
And so, rather than to confront the Pharisees here, rather than to hit them head on and to escalate the confrontation between them, to aggravate it all, he chose to withdraw himself when he could have just as easily snuffed out all of the opposition right then by calling an angel to slice and dice them with a sword. But this isn't the time. Jesus has a plan It's not the time for the cross. It's not time to escalate that. There's still much to be done. In fact, what I would say is there are a lot of preliminaries that have to take place. Don't ever underestimate the value of the preliminaries. J.A. Alexander wrote about this, and here's another 19th century writer, far more eloquent than I could ever be. He says, As it entered into the divine plan that his great atoning work should be preceded by a prophetic ministry of several years' duration the design of which was to indoctrinate the people in the nature of his kingdom, to prepare the way for its erection, and to train the men by whom it should be organized, it formed no small part of his work to check and regulate the progress of events so as not to precipitate the consummation, but secure and complete the requisite preparatory process. Make that real simple for you? Jesus was in control of every step. His enemies would do nothing until he was finished with his work. It wasn't until all of his teachings were in place. It was not until he had trained his disciples to take over for him after he was gone. It was not until every work that needed to be done was done that Jesus went to the cross. And so these people that had the idea that Jesus died as a martyr... That here we have just a series of random events that are very unfortunate. There's just this tragic, senseless death of an innocent man. Those who think that it's a huge mistake of massive proportions do not understand that Jesus came to do exactly what he did. That's the plan all along. He's the one who guided the process all the way from his birth to his death. Nothing happened by accident. When Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, this is after Jesus' death, this is when the Holy Spirit comes. He says in Acts chapter 2, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered, listen, by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Jesus was God's selected servant. And he came here to die for a world of lost sinners. He came to die that you might have life. It was his purpose before he ever created the first thing. He came here at the right time and he died at exactly the right time. And you know something? Now is the time for you to believe it. The Apostle Paul quoted words of Isaiah in 2 Corinthians 6. For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. You know, most people don't understand that quotation because it's actually God speaking to Jesus. And at the right time, God would send him to the earth and then supply everything that he needed to do his work Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. That is God saying to the Son, now is the time for you 
to go. Now is the time for you to bring salvation to my people. The Apostle Paul took that and he applied it to sinners. He applied it to unbelievers and he said, Now is the time for you to believe. Now is the time for you to receive God's grace. Don't wait. Today is the day for you to be saved. And we concur with that. Now is the time for people to receive Christ. And folks, this is as serious as it can possibly be. Eternal life and eternal death hang in the balance. And so we ask people to come to him, to trust him, to receive him as Savior. And then the gift of eternal life is yours. You can never earn it, not by the way that the Pharisees said, not by the rituals, not by all the Christian works. It comes by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And he says you can have it today if you believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful text that we've read today. We thank you for Jesus Christ who is the servant Son of God chosen to come to this earth to give his life for our sins. And Lord, we don't want to be we don't want to be in a place where we're we're making jokes about it and and we want to see it in all the seriousness that is here, that people's lives depend upon this, that people are dying and going to hell, and unless they believe this message of Jesus Christ, that is the that is the ending of this life. We must believe in order to go to heaven. I just pray, Lord, you'd open someone's heart to that truth, to that reality today. May they see it and believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.